Yo, welcome to the Phillies Nation podcast. This is episode number 33, and my name is Tim Malcolm. I am the editorial director of philliesnation.com, also the host of this podcast. I invite you to go on to philliesnation.com today for all of your Phillies news, rumors, information, opinion, and much more. You can follow us on Facebook at facebook.com slash philliesnation, Instagram at philliesnation underscore, and on Twitter at philliesnation. You can find the podcast on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, and YouTube.com slash Phillies Nation. On the podcast today, we talk about the cold stove. There's nothing happening right now in baseball in the offseason, so we dig in to find out if maybe the Phillies are still waiting to see prices come down and if there is a pitcher that is available for them and appropriate for them. We'll also talk about the players coming to spring training on non-roster invitations. There are eight of them. We will kind of give you a run-through of who they are. That was just announced. And we're going to talk Hall of Fame. We're going to talk about some of the guys who played for the Phillies who are on the Hall of Fame ballot. We will find out very, very soon who will be in the Hall of Fame. And there is one player who is definitely going to make it who played for the Phillies. That is Jim Tomey. And in honor of Jim Tomey and all the great stuff he provided us as Phillies fans and to Indians fans, I spoke with a Cleveland Indians super fan named Daniel Mitchell about his favorite Jim Tomey moments. I shared my favorite Jim Tomey moments, both team-specific, and that will come up late in the podcast. That is it. Again, go to philliesnation.com for all of your Phillies news, rumors, information, opinion, and much more. Now, let's start the podcast. Welcome to the Phillies Nation Podcast, episode number 33. I am Tim Malcolm, the host of the podcast and the editorial director of philliesnation.com. Welcoming you in to what is a cold, cold January. And I'm not just talking about the temperature outside. Yes, it is frigid. Bundle up in your parkas and your mittens. It is also cold in the baseball offseason. Very little happening, especially on the free agent market. I think the last big signing was Jay Bruce to the Mets. And then there was some reaction from Mets writers saying that Jay Bruce is actually a better signing than Carlos Santana to the Phillies, which is hilarious, by the way. Jay Bruce is only good for home runs and RBI, and those stats aren't really everything that tells you anything about a Major League Baseball player. But there's been no other action on the free agent market. Meanwhile, there was a trade last week while we were watching the Eagles beat the Falcons in the NFC Divisional game. That was an amazing game, by the way. Garrett Cole was traded from the Pirates to the Astros. The Astros sending a couple prospects over to Pittsburgh. And Astros are really hoping that they can get right back to the World Series in 2018 and win it again, get a back-to-back. Cole is a pretty good pitcher. He has had up-and-down patches in his career, but he could be a really good number two or three starter in that rotation, and they already have a really good rotation with Keuchel, obviously, and then, of course, Justin Verlander is there, and some of the younger pitchers that they have in that rotation, it is quite choice, so a good move by the Astros. Should the Phillies have picked up Garrett Cole? I'm not sure about that. In fact, I wrote a piece about that at philliesnation.com last week, talking about the reasons why they could have and maybe should have, but also the reasons why it was not a good idea at all, and really, my uh, conclusion is that the Phillies 
didn't and shouldn't have picked up Garrett Cole. So good thing that they didn't make that move. Who knows if they're in on anything else, whether it's Chris Archer or another trade candidate, or maybe they are in on a free agent pitcher. Of course, we do think the Phillies need pitching. 2017 was not a very good year for the starting rotation beside Aaron Nola. Vince Velasquez didn't pitch an entire season, nor did Jared Eikhoff. Ben Lively was the most consistent starter, but doesn't have strikeout stuff. Meanwhile, the guy with strikeout stuff, Nick Pavetta, couldn't give, could not give up a home run or a walk. He was very bad at keeping guys off base. Also, Jake Thompson was good, but smoke and mirrors good. And you didn't see a lot of great stuff from Mark Leiter Jr., but when he was on, it wasn't that bad at all. Besides that, Tom Eshelman, who knows if he's going to make it in the roster in 2018. He's got the ability, obviously, but can he translate his control and his lack of stuff into a major league career? Not quite sure. There are other pitchers in the system that are much below there in the double-A and single-A ranks. Of course, those are the names that we can't wait to see in a couple of years in Phillies uniforms. Sixto Sanchez, uh, Jojo Romero, Jose Tavares. They look really good, right? But... Can they be major league pitchers in 2018? No, they're going to be in the minors. So we do need pitching for this coming year. Where is that coming from? Well, there are some names. And over the last few weeks, the names continue to add up who the Phillies might be interested in and who people might think the Phillies should get. We figured that you Darvish and Jake Arrieta were not going to be in the Phillies' plans. Too much money, too much of a headache. You don't want to give that kind of deal to anybody right now. That makes sense. But there have been whispers very recently that Jake Arrieta might be wanting to come to Philadelphia. Why do we know this? Because Nick Williams, outfielder for the Philadelphia Phillies, has been working out with Jake Arrieta in Austin, Texas. Yeah, that's amazing, isn't it? Well, Austin is. It's a really awesome city. But... That's a really funny story. I mean, I it's kind of weird to me that Nick Williams, who is very young and very babyish in the majors, is sharing the same space with Jake Arrieta, an established and very, very good veteran pitcher. But, hey, that's awesome. And apparently they're talking a lot to each other, hanging out, working out, and Nick says you should come to Philadelphia. Well, Jake Arrieta, according to Megan Montemurro of The Athletic, Jake Arrieta said that he would love to play in Philadelphia. Is there something there? Well, that's up to the Phillies to decide. They'd have to give out the contract. Arietta would probably want a multi-year deal for five years at least. He'd probably want something like $20 million a year. Is he worth it? I think so. He has good numbers. He's had good numbers over his career. And you would hope that over the next three years at least, he would give you something around a three-and-a-half ERA, a strikeout rate of around 8% to 9%, a walk rate of 2 2.5%. Those are good numbers, number two type numbers, bordering on ace level. That's what the Phillies need to back with Aaron Nola in the rotation. So would they give it to Arietta? The problem is, of course, that the Phillies want to keep some of the resources for down the line. They don't want to give out a lot of money right now if that means they're going to not be able to give out a lot of money to someone like Bryce Harper or Manny Machado or Clayton Kershaw or someone in the next free agent class or later on even still. So who are the names that the Phillies might be most interested in? Well, we'll shelve our Arietta for now. We'll table him. But the names that are most interesting right now, it seems to Phillies fans at least, are Alex Cobb. And Lance Lynn. Alex Cobb has been rumored to be part of the Phillies' interest for some time now. There have been pieces written. John Heyman has said that Alex Cobb would be in the Phillies' interest. Cobb is pretty decent. 
but there are some issues with him. Now, he did say there were some reports that he did kind of want a deal of around five years, excuse me, four years and $70 million. That would be something around, what, $16, $17 million, $18 million uh, annual value. That's a lot, but that's about right for someone like Alex Cobb. But the four years is the issue. Do the Phillies want to pay a four-year contract to Alex Cobb, who hasn't quite yet proven that he's bounced back from Tommy John surgery all the way? He had Tommy John back in 2015. He recovered, came back late in 2016, pitched a very little bit in Tampa Bay. And then last year, he pitched a full season with the Rays and was healthy. He put up pretty decent numbers, but here are the numbers that I'm thinking about that are worrisome to me. Throughout his career, Alex Cobb has a ground ball rate of over 55% typically 56-57%. Last year, it was 47.8%. That's a drastic decline. Also, the home run rate. It was above one for the first time in his career in 2016. Now, again, short sample size. But last year, it was still above one. It did go down from 2016, so maybe that's a good sign. But there are worries with Cobb and how much he has and hasn't thrown. There's been a piece, pieces actually, that over the past few months about Alex Cobb and the way that he's been trying to get back to 100%. He's thrown a lot of fastballs and a lot of curveballs. His go pitch, which is the two-seam fastball or the sinker, has been his best pitch. Sometimes it's even called a changeup. Now, he used to throw that a lot, and that would engender the ground ball rates of around 55 56%. But last year, he didn't throw it a lot. Why? He said he didn't quite have the right handle on it. The grip wasn't great. He just hadn't feel for it yet. And he was hoping that the feel would come back. So in the meantime, he was throwing his fastball and curveball a lot more, but positioning those pitches so that they'd still go down in the zone, engendering a lot of fly balls, but fly balls that were not hit out of a ballpark. That's why the ground ball rate went down, and that's why his fly ball rate also went up. His home run rate went up, but not a lot so last year. The issue, though, is that Alex Cobb would be pitching in Philadelphia if the Phillies signed him. And in case you didn't know, Citizens Bank Park is the top home run hitters park in baseball. It's not the best offensive park, but it's the best home run hitters park. And I worry about bringing in someone who's having declining fly ball rates and doesn't quite have a handle for his changeup, sinker, whatever you want to call it, the pitch that gets the ground balls. If we bring him in for three or four years, we are betting big on a guy who's going to recover that third pitch again. We don't know if that's going to happen. And so for those reasons, I don't love Alex Cobb for the Phillies. The other name is Lance Lynn, who is a very sexy choice for a lot of Phillies fans because he gives you a lot of the things that Cobb gives you, but with a little bit less of the worry about the injuries. Now, here are the things that worry me about Lance Lynn. His home run rate was 1.3 over 9 last year. Again, that's not great. I mean, he's given up a home run at least every time he goes out to the to the mound, I mean, if he's throwing seven innings, he's probably throwing a home run every time he goes out there. Typically, his home run rate was around .6 or so per nine innings. So that went up quite a bit last year. He had a 4.82 fielding independent percentage last year. So taking into account the fielders, you know, his ERA goes down quite a bit. That's in spacious Bush Stadium. Citizens Bank Park is a lot smaller. And yes, the fielders at CBP will be pretty good. You have an outfield of Aaron Altair and Odupo Herrera and potentially Nick Williams. Maybe Hoskins will be in there from day to day, and that could be a problem. But for the most part, good outfield defense. Infield-wise, J.P. Crawford's a good shortstop. Second base is locked up, whether it's Cesar Hernandez or Scott Kingery. First base could be an issue. Carlos Santana isn't the best glove, but he's decent enough. 
Third base could be an issue because Mike Franco is an average glove, can be above average, but for the most part is average. So you're relying on Lynn to get a lot of outs, maybe pop-up and, 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 and easy ground balls, outs that he doesn't normally typically get all the time. Here's the other thing that I worry about with uh, Alex Cobb, or excuse me, Lance Lynn. Lynn is a fastball thrower. 81% of the pitches he threw last year were fastballs. And in 2016, 85.4% of the pitches he threw were fastballs. Excuse me, 87% of the pitches he threw last year were fastballs. The guy throws fastballs. Now, they're good fastballs. According to fan graphs, the fastball pitching value is a 15.4% last year. Anything above zero is good. Anything with a negative is not a great pitch. But a 15.4 means that's a really good pitch. Lynn's got one of the better fastballs in baseball. It only comes in at 91.7 miles an hour, but he has a lot of stuff on it. He's got a lot of movement. It it moves in and out of the zone, darts around. He changes up different fastballs. He doesn't throw one fastball all the time. He's really good at mixing and matching, much in the way that Cliff Lee did when he was with the Phillies. But Lynn does not have the secondary and tertiary pitches that Cliff Lee had. So you're looking at a guy who's relying on his fastball almost all of the time. He did have an improved changeup last year. My friend Eno Saris, who worked for Fangraphs.com, wrote up about that improved changeup from second half last year. But here's the problem with the changeup. Last year, he only threw it 2.6% of the time. That's not a lot. And that, I mean, if you think about it, in one outing, he's probably throwing the changeup, what, four times an outing, maybe three times an outing? That's not a lot at all. He's throwing a lot of fastballs, and in Citizens Bank Park, if a guy gets a hold of a fastball, he can rock it out of the park easily. So again, I worry about these two guys because of their ability to throw the homer ball and their lack of having a really good secondary or tertiary pitch that's going to give them that advantage at Citizens Bank Park. Now, the one thing that they both have are pretty decent walk rates. They don't put guys on base. That's great at CBP. You don't want guys coming onto the mound who give up a lot of walks and who give up fly balls. What you were looking for, if you're a manager or a GM in Citizens Bank Park, is a pitcher who throws a lot of ground balls, gets a lot of quick outs. If he gives up a single or the occasional double, not a big deal. Most of the time, these are either seeing eye hits or hits that just squeak by the fielder. So I'm looking at somebody who I would want on a two-year deal. A one-year deal is even better, but a two-year deal is fine. Jaime Garcia. You may remember him from the Atlanta Braves many years ago. He's pitched for the Cardinals a lot. Here's his numbers. He's 32 years old this year. He had a 54.8% ground ball rate last year. That's pretty darn good. And that's right in line with the numbers that Alex Cobb used to have. He threw 157 innings last year, 171 and two-thirds in 2016. Now, last year, he threw for three different teams. He was with St. Louis. Then he went to the Twins for about a week, and then they traded him to the Yankees. But he's thrown 157 last year, 171 and two-thirds the year before. Garcia used to be an injury-plagued pitcher. Now he's pretty durable. He can actually be counted on to throw six to seven innings most every time he goes out there. He had a 4.25 fielding independent percentage last year. You put a good defense behind him who can field ground balls. It's a pretty decent number. He'll probably get an ERA close to under four. Now, here's the problem with Jaime Garcia. He had a 3.67 walk rate last year. That's way up from 2.99 the year before, which is up from about 2.3 the year before that. So, yeah, the walk rate went up. 
There was a spike earlier last year with his walk rate. In April and May, he threw a lot more walks. It went down in June and July, and he seemed to be normal again. But then it spiked when he went to New York, and it went up to about 13% walk rate in, in August of 2017. It went down in September, but he only had a couple starts then. So there is an issue there. Is Jaime Garcia to be trusted with his control anymore? Now, it's a one-year blip, although it is a trend that is getting worse. So potentially, we're looking at a Phillies pitcher who could have a walk rate over 3 per 9. That's not great. But if the ground ball rate continues to be over 50 to 52%, I will take the higher walk rate because that means that he will get more ground ball outs and we can live with one more walk in 9 innings. So who do I want? I want Jaime Garcia. If he's for two years, I'd rather have that than Alex Cobb or Lance Lynn for three, four, or five years. And I don't want to pay more than 18 to $19 million for one of these starters. Jaime Garcia would probably demand you $12 million a year at the most. That is a steal for me, and I'd rather have him on the rotation. But that is also contingent on the Phillies getting a pitcher in a trade. And I don't know if that's going to happen. We haven't really heard much about the Phillies talking to the Rays about Chris Archer or talking to the Royals about Danny Duffy. They didn't talk to the Pirates about Garrett Cole, as far as we know. They're not talking to the Blue Jays about Marcus Stroman. So what's going on there? Are the Phillies really trying? It seems to me that Matt Klintak wants to give one more year to a lot of these young guys. Young guys in the rotation, like Jake Thompson, like Tom Eshelman, who will be coming up, like Pavetta. And he also wants to give one more year to guys who could be trade bait. Nick Williams, Aaron Altair, Dylan Cousins, Roman Quinn. These are the guys at the upper levels, either in the majors or AAA, who still have an opportunity to make it as really good major league players. Now, Williams already has, and Altair for the most part has. But I, it seems to me, at least, that Klentak believes a lot in these guys. Now, things can change in the next week or two. We could see a big trade. Anything can happen. But if the offseason has told us anything to this point, nothing is going to happen. We might just have to live with that. So if that's the case then the Phillies should try to hold out and get the best deal that they can for the pitcher that makes sense to them. But please no long-term deals for someone like a Cobb or a Lynn or even a Garcia. Two-year deal would be great. Three-year deal I might be able to live with, but a two-year deal is where I want to be for one of these guys. Well, the Phillies announced just recently, in fact today, that they are going to add eight players to spring training on non-roster invitations. Now, this happens every year. The Phillies invite a bunch of prospects to spring training, guys who are on the cusp of making the major leagues, but probably not there yet. The idea is to give them some training and some at-bats against major league pitching from time to time and just in a more competitive style of play early in the year. The eight guys that they're bringing in are... Eniel De Los Santos, a pitcher that the Phillies acquired in the Freddie Galvis trade. Tom Eshelman, of course, pitcher who has been in Lehigh Valley. Brandon Liebrandt, starting pitcher who was also recently in Lehigh Valley. Cole Irvin, starting pitcher who was recently with uh, Redding. Uh, pretty good pitcher, and he was a draft pick just a few years ago. J.D. Hammer. Now, you remember the great name and the guy with the awesome specs. J.D. Hammer's a reliever who they picked up in a trade over the uh, midseason. I believe it was in the Pat Neshek trade. You don't want to quote me on that, but I believe it was that trade. J.D. Hammer's been invited. Also, catcher Edgar Cabral, who was in the Florida State League with the Clearwater Threshers last year. Scott Kingery. We all know Scott Kingery. He will be getting the invite. And Andrew Pullen, outfielder who was with Lehigh Valley last year, also Reading. He was great in Reading, came up to Lehigh Valley, struggled a little bit, but for all intents and purposes, is a pretty darn good hitter. 
all these guys will get their shots in spring training. Now, it seems unlikely that any of them will actually make the Phillies. Don't believe that Scott Kingery is going to make the Phillies, especially if Cesar Hernandez is on the roster heading into 2018. If Hernandez is there, Kingery will not make the team. It's just as clear as that. Why? Hernandez is too good to be blocked and to be sitting on the bench. Hernandez will get the spot until it's time to move on from him. Whether it's in a trade or some other way, they will keep Hernandez there until they move on from him. And then Kingery will come up as long as everything's cool there. Will anybody actually compete for a spot out of these eight guys? It's possible that someone like J.D. Hammer, just because relief pitching is so fungible and you never know if one guy can just catch fire. Now, Hammer's a little younger. And when I say younger, he's been in lower levels. He's actually 22, so he's ready to be in the major leagues probably tomorrow. But... Hammer could find his way in if he pitches well enough in spring. Out of everybody else, maybe Tom Eshelman has an outside shot, but he's probably the eighth or ninth guy on the depth chart right now. And if the Phillies add another pitcher through free agency, he's basically the tenth guy. So at that point, it's not even worth thinking about him at the moment. But it'll be good to see him against Major League hitting early in spring training to see if he has the stuff and he's ready to go for 2018. Otherwise, everybody else is pretty much just getting their shots until the season begins. Don't think too hard about one of these guys making the major leagues. Just enjoy watching them play. See if anybody catches some fire. And ride that wave. We'll have a story on them in March when they you know, have a home run or two in two or three days. That'll be fun. But it's good to see guys like Kingery and Eshelman and Andrew Pullen especially get shots here as we keep going and get closer to spring training. We are one week from finding out who is going to make the National Baseball Hall of Fame. The 2008 ballots are coming in. Well, we know about 45.8% of the ballots now, and that's all thanks to Ryan Thibodeau, who does great work every year. He's a baseball writer who collects all of the ballots and tries to figure out who's got the best shot of making the Hall of Fame through what we know so far. 45.8% of the votes are in, and it looks like we'll have a decent class this year. But there are some players who will not make it, and in fact, really didn't have a shot. Some of those guys are former Phillies. Kevin Millwood, 2004 no-hitter. He had a good year for the Phillies then. Then the Phillies got rid of him a couple years later, and he won the ERA title with the Cleveland Indians. Goes to show you. Millwood got absolutely no votes. Sorry, Kev, you're not making the Hall of Fame. Brad Lidge. We love Brad Lidge. It was perfect in 2008, 42 for 42, perfect in the postseason, things that we he will never, ever, will never leave his name and will never forget what he did for us in 2008. But nobody else really cares. He's not making the Hall of Fame. In our hearts, though, he is always in the Hall of Fame, and hopefully he makes the Phillies Wall of Fame one day. I mean, just for the fact that he was perfect in 08. I know I'm kind of a small wall guy, but I have a little bit of a sore spot for Brad Lidge. So he did not make the Hall of Fame. Sorry, Brad. Also not making the Hall of Fame, Jamie Moyer. But Jamie Moyer got a vote. Somebody voted for Jamie Moyer. And I don't think it was a Philadelphia writer. I think it was somebody else completely different. But good for Jamie. He deserves one. He had one of the longest major league careers of all time. Is the major league leader of, what, walks, I believe, and home runs given up? Those are dubious, right? But he's also a guy who won a lot of games. 250 or so. In fact, there was recently a piece that was written about Jamie Moyer and how much he compares with the recent Hall of Famer, Jack Morris. I don't think Jack Morris should be in the Hall of Fame. 
And Jamie Moyer probably doesn't belong either. At least Jamie got a vote. Jack Morris had a whole campaign and a whole thing, and he finally got in on the Veterans Committee. I don't know how I feel about it. I don't love it. But Jamie Moyer, at least he got his vote, and he does have the memories of the 2008 World Series to go by. So good for you, Jamie. Sorry you didn't make the haul. Also not making it, Scott Rowland. Rowland only got 23 votes to this point, 11.9% of the vote at this point. He has been eliminated from the tally because he will not hit the threshold. That stinks. Scott Rowland was one of my favorite players growing up. He, of course, won Rookie of the Year with the Phillies. He had a couple of really great seasons with the Phillies. A five-tool type player. Outstanding defense. One of the top five defensive third basemen of all time. Also one of the better offensive third basemen of all time. Yes, there are players that eclipse him. Chipper Jones, we'll get to him in a second. Adrian Beltre, who will be a Hall of Famer one day. Obviously, Mike Schmidt. Eddie Matthews. But Scott Rowland was a really good player for a very long time. He wasn't going to make the Hall of Fame. I knew that. But he's definitely in the Hall of Very Good. And I was just hoping that he would get more than enough votes to hang on the ballot for another year or two. It's just good to see people recognize Scott Rowan and the good things he's done. A couple other guys did not get even close and will not hang on either into next year. And I'm really surprised at two of them. One of them is Johan Santana. Santana to this point only has three votes with 45.8% of the ballots known. That's crazy. I'm sorry, but Johan Santana for a couple years was one of the top three pitchers in baseball. That alone should get you 15% of the vote in the first year, I think. But he's not getting it. He's not going in. He was also a big heel for the Phillies in 2007 with the Mets, 2008. But it's over. In fact, he wasn't with the Mets in 2007, was he? Now I forget. It seems so long ago. Sorry, Johan, you're not making it. Also not making it, and this really bugs me. Andrew Jones. Jones only has 12 votes at this point. 6.2%. Not going to hit the threshold. I can't believe it. Andrew Jones was an incredible player. Great offensive player with a great on-base percentage and amazing power. He also could field like a mother. One of the greatest defensive outfielders of all time. You put him in the conversation with Gary Maddox and Willie Mays and just a couple others. Andrew Jones is right at the top. The fact that he was that great defensively and has that great of an offensive profile, it boggles my mind, along with the World Series championship and the multiple playoff appearances, that Andrew Jones is not getting more love from the Hall of Fame voting committee. I mean, it doesn't make sense to me. I know he had a shorter career. He got injured at the end. But dude, Andrew Jones was awesome. He should at least get a second look at the Hall and maybe he will get that second look later on when the Veterans Committee looks at some other players. But it is just a crying shame that Andrew Jones is not getting more consideration. Someone who is getting a lot of consideration, Chipper Jones, his teammate from Atlanta, 98.5% of the vote to this point, easily making the Hall of Fame. Congratulations to Chipper Jones. I don't like him. I never did, much like other Phillies fans out there. No, I don't like him at all but I can understand why he's a Hall of Fame player completely. He deserves to be in the Hall. Congratulations to him. Also making it seems to be Vladimir Guerrero will go in. 94.8% of the vote to this point. Vlad was awesome. Another Philly killer, especially in, you know, 1998, 99, 2000, those years when he was with the Expos. My goodness. 
The arm out of right field was ridiculous. His ability to hit big home runs while swinging from his knees. Are you kidding me? Vlad Guerrero was amazing. I'm glad he's making the Hall of Fame. One of my favorite players to hate and love at the same time. He's getting in. It's possible that Edgar Martinez gets in, although his case is starting to waver a little bit. 80.9% to this point. He got close last year, but this year it looks like he might get in as long as the numbers hold up. Edgar, maybe the greatest designated hitter of all time, wonderful offensive player, hitting over 300 almost every year, 30 home run power, always constantly on base in the middle of that Mariners lineup that was so deadly in the 90s with Ken Griffey Jr. and Jay Buhner, one of my favorite teams. Edgar belongs, I think, just because his offense was so darn good. And even though even though he was found as part of the steroid era, Rafael Palmeiro is very similar, and I think he should get more love. Yeah, I know. Even though the steroid thing, Palmeiro still was a gifted offensive player. Same for Juan Gonzalez. Same era, same kind of player, amazing offense, very little defense. But I think they get more consideration. They should. They're long gone from now. But maybe the Veterans Committee, one day when we get past the steroid era stuff, we'll take a look at them. There is one that is very close, and that is Mike Mussina, 73.2%. I thought Mussina was... A very good pitcher for a long time. I loved him with the Orioles. Didn't like him with the Yankees, but that's just my biases, of course. But Mussina had a very long and successful career. Was never quite the best pitcher in baseball, but was really good for a long period of time. So I think he potentially deserves it. And Trevor Hoffman, 77.8%. I guess simply because he was the all-time saves leader for a long time that maybe he deserves it. I'm not so sure. His peripherals weren't so good, but it looks like he's on the cusp. And if he doesn't make it this year, he will certainly make it next year. So Trevor Hoffman is also in that group. And finally, another former Philly, Kurt Schilling, 65.5% of the vote. He's getting a little closer, but he seems to be hanging out in that 60% range year after year. It doesn't look like he'll get in this year. Does he belong? I'm not sure. Part of me says yes. He was so good for a long time, and he had a good peak with Arizona. He probably should get in, but at the same time, he wasn't exceptional. He wasn't the best pitcher. He was pitching at the time of Roger Clemens and then Pedro and Johan Santana and Halliday. Tough to say. The other thing is his character. I'm not a fan of it. A lot of things that are really worrisome to me. And I know that's not everything, and it shouldn't be everything with the Hall of Fame, but the writers do take that into account. End of the day, I'd probably keep Kurt out of my Hall of Fame. Oh, well. There is one other guy, and I wanted to leave him for the end because he's who we're going to talk about a little bit, Jim Tomey. Jim Tomey is going to the Hall of Fame this year. He has 93.3% of the vote after 45.8% of the ballots have been counted. He will get in as long as, I mean, there's no complete, ridiculous, you know, full-on anti-Tomey thing coming up that we don't know about. But Tomey will get in. One of the great guys in baseball and a 600-plus home run hitter. Not only that, but he got on base at a superb clip. Was exceptional at a lot of things. Not a great defensive player, but he hung in at first base for a long time. And he even came up as a third baseman, for those of you who forget that. He was a great player. Exceptional player. Elite player. Hall of Fame player. Congratulations to Jim Tomey. And I wanted to talk a little bit about Jim Tomey's impact with the Phillies and with the Indians. So why don't we do that now? Let's continue our talk about Jim Tomey. 
by I wanted to bring in an Indians fan because I feel it's not fair um, to talk about Jim Tony without mentioning the Indians. He, of course, spent the majority of his career as a Cleveland Indian, and he will undoubtedly go into the Hall of Fame as a Cleveland Indian. So I wanted to bring in a fan to talk about his career as an Indian and share some of his favorite highlights um, from Tommy as an Indian with me, and I'll share some of my favorite Tommy as a Philly highlights. So I'm bringing in Daniel Mitchell, who is a big-time Cleveland Indians fan. Uh, are you from Cleveland, Daniel? Yes, I am. I grew up in Lakewood, which is right outside of Cleveland. Thank you. Thank you for having me on. And uh, let me just first off ask you, how big of a Cleveland Indians fan are you? Tell everybody listening, you know, what kind of fan you are and, and what your credentials are. Oh, man. Well, the Indians are my favorite baseball team. They've been my favorite team since I was a kid. Um, I used to be a vendor for them in high school for a couple seasons. Uh, now I'm a season ticket holder. Uh, it's something that, you know, every summer going to the games with my friends, my family, it's just been a huge part of my life. And um, my wife and I are trying to go to every baseball stadium together. Uh, we recently saw the Indians out in San Francisco this summer. Um, so hopefully we get to see more stadiums and more of the Indians play in different parks. Um, it's just been a huge part of my life, and they've always been a great bunch of guys to root for. I, I love what you're doing, then, with the stadiums. Baseball road trips are the best. Um, have you been to Philadelphia yet? No, I have not. Okay. Well, it's a fun stadium. Don't worry about the fans. We're all good people. Um, especially, if you, especially if you wear a Tommy jersey, people would love you. So don't worry about it. Okay. Great. <laughs> um, so I know that you. Uh, well, first off, let me ask you, how old are you? Because I'm just, I'm just curious. I'm 26. Okay, so so you were very young when Tommy started his career. I mean, you were born basically when Tommy started his career, right? Right, right. Child of the '90s, so the '95 team was one of my favorites growing up, and um, you know, I grew up with the team. Okay. Um, and I know recently, uh, last season, you won some sort of a contest uh, on a television station, uh, Cleveland Television Station, correct? Correct. Yeah, the NBC Cleveland affiliate did a contest for um, for an Indian super fan for last year's home opener. Um, they picked my application. I kind of did my reasons why I should be picked as a starting lineup. I thought that would set it apart from the other applicants. Um, so I helped them cover opening day. I did some social media posts and videos with the sports team after the game, um, which Cleveland won on a walk-off, so that was great to be there for that. They did the, the ring ceremony for the championship um, in 2016, the American League championship. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, so so, you, so those credentials are real then is what you're saying. <laughs> I think so, yes. <laughs> and and I know um, you have a story about meeting Jim Tomey, or at least having an interaction with him when you were a kid, correct? Correct, yes. The Indians used to do this thing called Wahoo Winterfest. Now it's Tribe Fest, which is coming up this Saturday. Um, but when I was four, we went and we were um, overlooking the event floor, um, and I saw Tomey signing autographs, and he was my favorite player. So I just yelled down to him. I said, hey, Jim Tomey. He looked up, he waved, and he said, hey, buddy. <laughs> um, I know it's just, it's it's just a small thing, um, but to me, you know, a kid who loved baseball, it meant everything to me. And you know, he took time to make a kid's day. Who he, I wasn't right in front of him. I was you know up and um, out of the way. Um, you know, I'm sure he has no memory of this, and you know that's fine. But from everything I've read and seen about him, I know he's a stand-up guy. Um, you know how they say like you know don't meet your heroes. Um, I think he's he's the exception to that rule on this one. 
Yeah, I mean, everybody, you know, has a story about, I mean, everybody who at least covered the Phillies and the Indians or any team that Jim's been on and anybody who's ever been close to him has a story about how generous he is and how kind he is and funny he is. And, you know, he seems like one of the absolute best people to have ever played the game. And not just mm-hmm. that, you know, he's also one of the great sluggers of all time and, you know, clearly a Hall of Famer. If you don't mind, I mean, you don't need to give a plea for his Hall of Fame candidacy because he's getting in and that's why we're doing this. But what does what is, what is Tony mean to you as a ball player? I mean, why why was he your favorite player? And, and you know, what what's made him kind of your number one over your entire life? Well, he was easy to root for. He was a lefty, and I was a lefty. So, I you know, I did his signature back coin. I wore the high socks. Uh, I played first base. All the stuff that, you know, Tommy did growing up as a kid was something that I wanted to emulate. And he made it really easy by, you know, hitting all those home runs and being such a great player for the Indians. So he will definitely go into the Hall of Fame this year. We know that. It looks like it's a it's a lock, which is great because mm-hmm. he should be a first ballot Hall of Famer. Um so oh, what absolutely. I wanted to do what I wanted to do was um share, you know, my favorite three Phillies uh moments, the Jim Tommy Phillies moments, and have you share your favorite three uh Indians Jim Tommy moments and we'll do it back and forth. So I'll start and then, then you can go and then you'll finish the whole thing. Um so I my I put up a list of three. And my, my number three uh, favorite Jim Tomey is a Philly moment. There was a moment, uh, August 17, 2003, and these are all on YouTube, which is, you know, very easy to just look it up and reminisce. Um, Jim Tomey was in his third inning of a game against the St. Louis Cardinals. The Phillies are playing on Sunday Night Baseball. They were very deep in a wild card race with, at the time, the Florida Marlins. Uh, this was in 2003. And the Phillies were 68 and 54 at the time. So they were a really good team. And I mean, that was part of why they brought in Jim Tomey. They wanted to show the rest of baseball that they were an emerging team who could contend for a playoff spot. And Tomey was the next big piece that they would bring in. And he certainly was that. He had, at the time, had 32 home runs. He was on some sort of a big tear at that time, hitting a bunch of home runs in a row. And he comes into this situation, third inning of the game against the Cardinals. The game was tied. And um, Brett Tomko was on the mound for the Cardinals, which is a blast from the past. And he, I think it was like a 1-0 pitch or something, and Tomei just slaughtered the ball all the way up into the upper deck. It was a moonshot. And since it was Sunday Night Baseball, you had uh, the great call from, I forget the, the, the name of the guy who used to do the play-by-play, the old Giants announcer. But just a great call, and the fans went nuts. It was like the middle of a you know competitive playoff race you know atmosphere. And we had all these fan groups at the vet back then, Veteran Stadium. And one of the groups that we had was Tommy's Homies. And it was a bunch of these, you know, people who were about my age at the time, you know, maybe like high school age, college age, who were up in the very deep 600, 700 level in the stadium way up high with this big blanket that said Tommy's Homies on it. And they would root for him uh, anytime he got a home run. We had other groups like that, like uh, Padilla's Flotilla. Uh, in honor of Vicente Padilla, we they had a giant raft, and uh, the Wolf Pack, which is the most famous group uh, for Randy Wolf. So it was a really crazy atmosphere back then before Citizens Bank Park, but Jim Tomey kind of ushered in that new era of Phillies baseball, and that big moonshot was sort of symbolic of what he brought to the Phillies at the time. They did not make the wild, they did not make the wild card that year. They lost out to the Marlins, and of course everybody knows what happened to the Marlins that year. They went on to win the World Series in 2003, so goes to show you. Uh, Daniel, what is your number three moment for the Indians? All right. My number three uh, moment of Jim Tomey on the Indians, um, 
There was a walk-off home run he hit against the Angels on August 4th, 2000. Um, they won the game 11-10. to 10. Uh, My whole family went to the game, and we were sitting out in right field, and the home run that he hit landed in our section, um, which was – that was the closest um, I'd ever come to a home run ball. Mm-hmm. Um, and the, the next day, we went to my grandma's house, and the game was on TV, and it was I think it was one of, like, the Fox Saturday games, so – um, they showed the highlights from the night before when Tommy came up, and they showed the ball um, landing in the section. I could, I think I could pick out my mom's sweatshirt. Um, <laughs> and so it was like, oh, yeah, I'm on TV right now. Um, <laughs> so I, I think I was like eight at the time. So, yeah. it, it, you know, it just took me right back to the, the walk-off all over again. Um, yeah. You know, it's probably not one of his most iconic Tommy moments, but it's one that I'll always remember for sure. Well, yeah, I mean, you were at the game, and, and, and the home run happened right near you. And, I mean, oh, that's yeah. the funny thing, because I, I had the same kind of, you know, in my past when I was a kid, you know, four, five, six, seven, eight years old, I think the most important thing for me sometimes at the baseball game was to try to get on television. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> I, you know, you'd bring a sign that said something crazy so that the cameras might catch you, or you just kind of, like, try to run the section by yourself so that, you know, maybe maybe the cameras will find you at some point. But, um, yeah, so so you were definitely like, I need to see, you know, my family in the section at the time and pick it out and show my friends and everything, right? Oh, yeah. <laughs> so my number two moment uh, with uh, Jake Tomey uh, being part of the Phillies, so this is a big moment, and this was from his second go-round with the Phillies. Um, you know, for those of you who might have forgotten, in 2012, the Phillies brought in Jim Tomey. And reason being... We all know 2011, the Phillies were the best team in baseball. They, you know, had this great run. Then they lost in the playoffs with the Cardinals. And Ryan Howard tore his Achilles and was out to begin the 2012 season. And to help repair that, the Phillies, A, brought in Ty Wigginton, which is not a way to repair a Ryan Howard injury. But the second way to do it was to bring in Jim Tomey, which is sort of ironic because Tomey, of course, was the first baseman when the Phillies uh, brought up Ryan Howard. And Tomey was hurt at the time and Howard played so well that the Phillies had to trade Jim Tomey, and they traded him to the White Sox. So now Tomey was back in Philadelphia playing for Ryan Howard, basically, as a pinch hitter and a first baseman at times. And this was June 23, 2012. The Phillies weren't that great at the time. Uh, they were maybe like five or six games under 500 at the time. They were playing the Tampa Bay Rays, and Jake McGee was on the mound. It was the ninth inning of a tie game, 6-6. And Tomey comes to the plate. And McGee throws him, you know, really tough at that, a lot of high-velocity stuff, the fouling off pitches, trying to battle in it. You know, Tommy's at the very end of his career. He's about to retire. And all he's trying to do is just get a hit, somehow get a hit. Well, what do you know? He finally gets a hold of one, and he cranks it opposite field to left field, a line drive home run, one of the last home runs of his career, and it was his 13th career walk-off home run which was the major league record for most walk-offs ever by a player. Uh, the Phillies won the game. They did finish the year only 500, 81-81. Tommy, uh, later on in the season, was traded to Baltimore, and he soon retired. But for Phillies fans, I think that was such a cool moment. I was actually somewhere else. I was, like, hiking or something that day, and I was able to listen to the end of the game on my phone, and I went nuts because it was really cool to have Asian Tommy back in pinstripes but B, having him have this, like, last wonderful walk-off moment where everybody could crowd around him and celebrate, the fans can kind of rejoice. And it brought it all back together for a lot of us because 
when he left in 2005, it was pretty unceremonious. He was just traded, and Ryan Howard was here. But now we finally got a chance to sort of thank him for everything that he brought to baseball and to Philadelphia. So it was a really cool moment at the end of his career that we we got to savor. Uh, what about your number two, Daniel? That's an awesome one. That kind of ties into my second one. Um, in 2011, Tony came back to the Indians near the end of his career. Um, and one of the games, I think it was September 23rd, um, we went to the game. It was Dollar Dog Night. and um, I saw him hit his final home run as an Indian, uh, which, wow. you know, not you, you have no idea when his last home run is going to be, but that it ended up being his last home run. But also that night they announced that he was getting a statue at Progressive Field. Um, and I know when he left, um, it was kind of polarizing for a lot of fans because he left for Philadelphia for a big contract. Um, and I know a lot of fans don't necessarily think he deserves a statue just because there's so many, um, you know, deserving players. Um, but for me, I've always been a huge Tony fan. So I've always thought he deserved a statue. Um, and it was tough to root against him, um, yeah. even though, you know, it, it, crushed me when he left when I was a kid. Um, so, you so, know, just being in – the crowd reception that night was just unreal. And then when he hit that home run, it just – it was crazy. It was like it was the 90s all over again. Yeah. I mean, it's funny because I, I remember when Tommy's statue was unveiled, he was sort of bashful about it. Like, he didn't think that it was, I guess, the best idea for him to have a statue at the park, right? Right, right. And and, and it's funny, I mean I, – I, it is fun. I mean, it makes sense, you know, that, that – I mean, we have the same problem with Jason Worth. Um, You know, Jason Worth didn't nearly have the same career that Tommy had in Cleveland. Um, but Worth, when he left for Washington after the 2010 season, a lot of the fans got upset at him. A, he did go to a division rival, and that's always – you know, it stings a little bit. But B, he took so much money, and I think people were sort of angry about that. And then he grew the beard and became this, like, other character. Um mm-hmm. And, 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 you know, we have a problem with that in Philly. I don't think it's, it shouldn't be like that. I mean, Jason Worth gave us a lot of great stuff in Philly, just as Tommy gave you guys a lot of great stuff in Cleveland. Do you think that now, you know, since times have, you know, passed and Tommy's going to the Hall of Fame and all this, is everybody in Cleveland now totally back on board with Tommy? I think so. Um, I, Cleveland, we're very protective of our players. And we take things very personally. I think that Philly fans can agree with that. Um, you know, so I certainly have, and I hope that more of the fans have. Um, I would say more have than not. Um, I think the statue is still one of the polarizing things. Um, I don't know anyone that doesn't think Tommy shouldn't be in the Hall of Fame. Um, and I've been tracking some of the ballots that have come in and seeing some that don't have Tommy on it, um, which, you know, Hall of Fame voting is probably a whole another podcast. Um, <laughs> you know, I'd like to see them be able to vote as many people and deserve it instead of just ten. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, I would say Cleveland's forgiven, Tony. Yeah, and it's funny. I was um, just to just to go off of that the forgiving thing. I was in Cleveland uh, in May of 2011, and I don't know if you remember, but at that time Cleveland was like the best team in the American League. They were off to this amazing start. And I went to a game, and I started talking to some fans. And one of the fans I talked to um, was just so pissed off that LeBron James had recently gone to Miami. It was right after that. 
Um, yeah. And, you know, the burning of the jerseys and everybody in Cleveland had their reaction to it. But a couple of years later, he comes back and he wins a world title for the Cavs. So, you know, and people are seemingly, you know, okay with him. But, you know, people change, things change. And mm-hmm. it's it's hard when you when you when you root for you know a uniform and and guys leave that uniform for certain reasons it's hard to kind of you know grapple with that but it's good to hear that Tommy's back in the good graces with with enhanced fans for the most part. Um, yeah. All right, my number one moment, and this is the obvious number one moment for all Phillies fans um, during Tommy's brief but very eventful career as a Philly. June fourteenth, two thousand four. I was just home from college um, for the summer, and the Phillies had a game against the Reds. It was a makeup game from a series where there was a rain out back in April. And I wanted to go to this game because of two things that could happen in that game. One, my favorite player as a kid, like one of my two favorite players as a kid, Ken Griffey Jr. for the Reds, was at 499 and could hit his 500th home run in that game. Two, Jim Tomey, who would fast become my favorite player because he was on the Phillies and he was great, was at 399 and could have his 400th home run in that game. So that's a big freaking deal. And it's like, oh, my God, I got to go to this game. So I got to take it. Yeah. And and the thing was, in Citizens Bank Park, it was the first year of it, and I hadn't been to the park yet. So it would be my first game at the new park. So I was really jazzed up for it. And it wasn't even sold out. I think there was, it was a really big crowd, but it wasn't sold out. So I was able to get a quick ticket. And I went down to the stadium, and I got in, and we get to the game. And first inning, um, I, I forget who was on the hill for the Reds. Uh, Jose Acevedo, I wrote that down. And runner gets on in the first inning. Tommy comes to the plate. Everybody's going nuts. Opening hits one. Lo and behold, he slams one <laughs> in the right field. He hits his 400th home run. Uh, it was actually left. It was an opposite field homer. His 400th home run. We go nuts. The crowd's going insane. Um, it's the coolest moment because I'm like, oh, my God, I got to see someone hit a milestone homer, and it was Tommy's 400th, and it was his first really big homer as a Philly. And then the next at that, Pat Burrell comes to the plate, and we're, we're still all screaming for Tommy. There's a curtain call. Burrell steps up at the plate, takes the pitch, and then he hits a home run. And we're still screaming for Tommy as he's rounding the bases. Uh, Phillies go on to win that game, and it was a relatively overcast game. The sad thing about it is that Ken Griffey Jr., who I really wanted to see because he was my favorite player growing up with Cowherton Jr., uh, Griffey didn't play in the game. Uh, Dusty Baker, I don't know, he wasn't the manager of the Reds. Whoever was the manager of the Reds at the time decided not to, uh, not to play Ken Griffey Jr. during those road games. And he may have actually hit one on the road. He might have hit 500 on the road. I forget how it worked out. But he tried to set him as much as possible. That Griffey could try to hit the 500 at home in Cincinnati. So we didn't get to see him in that game. But it was still really awesome to have Tommy hit his 400. And in the first at that, it was like, I'm not going to make people wait. I'm going to do this right now and get everybody happy and on their feet. And we're going to win this game. And that was Jim Tommy to a T. He didn't make anybody wait for his big home runs. Like the 600th he hit again with Minnesota, he hit 599 and 600 back to back. It was like I don't care, I'm doing it. So that that was my number one, Jim Tommy. What is yours, Daniel? That's an awesome story. I remember that home run when he hit that one, and that's man, he's had a lot of home runs. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> what is he like sixth, seventh, or eighth most all time or something like that now? Yeah, I think he's eighth. Although he may get passed in a couple seasons. 
Yeah, there's a couple uh, guys who are pretty close at this point. Yeah. My top Tommy memory was in 2016, he got inducted into the Indians Hall of Fame. Um, my whole family went to the game for the induction. Um, it was an early birthday present for me. Um, they all know how much I like Tommy, so uh, they wanted to go there for me. Um, his whole family was there. His daughter sang the national anthem. And, you know, seeing the highlights of his career and getting inducted into the Indian Hall of Fame, knowing that he's going to go to Cooperstown this summer uh, was a really special moment for me to kind of look back on my favorite player in my childhood. Um, and it's just it's one of those things that makes being a baseball fan so great. Um, yeah. So that's one of the, you know, the sentimental choices for Tommy, for sure. Yeah, and, and, you know, you get a chance to think to kind of reminisce those moments and you get the big video packages and he gets to talk and, you know, it, it's, a, it's a nice kind of comeback to see, you know, just the reception that he gets. And then you start thinking about, man, the Hall of Fame is coming up in a couple of years. You know, he'll probably get inducted. Are you gonna Are you gonna try to go to Cooperstown? Oh, I would love to. I my wife is having a baby in March, so. Oh, congratulations! <laughs> thank you, thank you. Um, we'll see. I'd love to go. I uh, hope hope I can get a way to do that. Well, yeah, hopefully. I mean, you got what a four month old, five month old baby at that time, so you never know. Um, <laughs> It's, yeah, it's, it's a it's a very interesting time. I just had one myself, so it's it's it's, it's a lot to work with. Well, you never know. Maybe maybe uh, you guys will get to go and you get to you know have fun. Uh, it's a great place, and I don't know if you've been there, but it's an awesome place to just just check out. And, and the, the Hall of Fame is incredible. And the, I've never been to the actual ceremony, but I'm sure it's going to be pretty amazing. And it seems to be a couple people who are going to get in this year, so it's going to be a lot of fun. Oh, definitely, definitely. Well, thank you so much, Daniel Mitchell. Um, where can people find you on Twitter if they want to follow you for Indians stuff or whatever else you do? I'm on Twitter at yeah underscore Mitch. Great. And is it mostly Indians that you uh, tweet about, or, or what's your, what, what do you do? Mostly Indians. Um, you know, movies, Game of Thrones, books that I'm reading. Um, I try not to take it too seriously and have fun with it, so... If you want to follow, I'd appreciate it. So looking forward to interacting with some Philly fans. Nice. Well, we, we try to make it fun, too, and we do get serious from time to time. I'm sure a lot of us are going to get serious this weekend when the, when the NFC Championship happens, and that's a whole other story. But, you know, we, we, we have a lot of fun during baseball season. So, uh, Daniel, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. I really appreciate it. Thank you so much for having me on, Tim. Good luck this weekend. Well, that ends it for this week's Phillies Nation podcast. My thanks to bensound.com for the music for the podcast. Thanks to Daniel Mitchell for coming on and talking to me about Jim Tomey, sharing his memories. It's great to hear fans talk about how much they love players and and, and hoping to go to Cooperstown. Hopefully he gets there. It would be great to see him uh, get that opportunity. Thanks to all of you for listening. Again, listen to us on Apple Podcasts, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Spreaker, and YouTube.com slash Phillies Nation. Give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Give us a great review and rating. On Apple Podcasts, you'll see philliesnation.com, our Phillies Nation podcast, and you'll see an interesting logo. It's an old logo, but it is our podcast. You will check it out. You'll see it. Boom, there it is. Give us a good five-star rating, please. We'd love to get it. It helps us generate more listeners, and it helps us get up in the standings. Please give us a shout. We'll be back 
Hopefully, for some breaking news or something, maybe something fun. Hopefully, that happens. We'll see what the hot stove gives us, if anything at all. Until then, I'm Tim Malcolm. See you next time. E-A-G-L-E-S, Eagles!